On December the 22nd, 1984, Bernard Getz shot four black men on a New York City subway train after they allegedly tried to rob him. Getz gave himself up to the police nine days later and was charged with attempted murder, assault, reckless endangerment, and several firearms offenses. He will only serve eight months for these crimes. At first, Getz was viewed by many as a vigilante, and he got widespread public support. However, public opinion about Getz changed after his police interrogation was made public, and people started to wonder, was this really a case of self-defense? This is the story of the subway vigilante. ever feel like a plastic bag do you ever feel the opposite of that like completely confident for no reason listen to me guys because i have a couple of things to say okay why are you this is not visual content today but i'm pointing a finger right at somewhere somewhere in the freaking air okay so if you haven't listened to the minisode the rules have changed the rules of the game have changed basically i'm gonna be posting only two episodes a month okay so episodes are gonna be coming fortnightly instead of weekly as they did before so you will have one minisode and then one episode a month so for the next three months to follow the pattern of discussing the motives and figuring out the motives of specific niche of crime, we will be going through free vigilante stories. And the Minnesota are going to be whatever, usually fake crime. That is not why we are here. We are here because of the vigilante story, yes. <laughs> but that is not my main premise. That was sort of just like a headline, you know, just like a byline before we actually dive in. Do you ever just like trick yourself into happiness? So I don't know how to manifest, right? Otherwise, I probably would be doing it. But I don't know how to do it. So what I do instead is listen to this playlist on Spotify that is called Deep Dive Year 2000. It's basically like the music, you know, my t- childhood come upings, teenagehood. And that, that had worked somehow. Lisa, everything is changing about my life and that's why I'm reducing the number of episodes here to still maintain both channels and like maintain my work life. I don't have a life. Let's just be honest. I'm not changing it so that I suddenly go back out and like party and hoe around. Let's just be, (laughs) just say it as it is, okay? I'm changing it purely to still just continue releasing content that is of decent quality and still maintain two channels. So in that light, you know, I'm going for changes and I don't like them because I'm a Scorpio. I like being in control. And as such, I have been tricking myself that everything is going to be okay. And it has worked so far. You see, that could have been scripted and then told like in two seconds, not like three minutes. Sure, sure. Okay, so the story (laughs) I have for you today, listen to me, everybody. The story we have today 
on this very podcast episode. The podcast is called What By All Means Necessary because we do things here by all means necessary. We get to the core of the motives, one motive at a time. And yes, I am your host, Maya. I'm the voice of it. <laughs> Boy, if this is somebody's first episode, they're in for a shit show. Yes. Okay. So if you are familiar with this case, which I was not until listening to this episode, you will probably feel passionate about it one way or the other. And I'm just here to say that that's okay. By the end of the day, I still feel passionate about it, but probably not in a way that a lot of people expect. The only thing I'm going to say here is your opinions are welcome. That's all great. However, if you are in Bernie Getz's fan club, if that kind of thing exists, which if it does, it's kind of alarming. But if you are, you might disagree with me on quite a few points here. I'm still going to try to give you the case as unbiased as I always do. But just saying, you might not be the biggest fan of what I'm about to say in the conclusions, and especially when we talk about motives when it comes to vigilantism. That being said, let us begin. And our story today is going to start off with the shooting that happened in December of 1984. So picture this. You're a 37-year-old middle-aged white man. It's a winter in New York. You're probably wearing whatever the hell the fashion was of 1980s. And you are entering one of the cars on the New York's busiest subway. And there are four black teenagers that are already sitting down in their seats on it. Those teenagers are Barry Allen, who was 19 years old, Troy Kenty, who was 19 as well, Daryl Cabey, also 19, and James Ramzur, who was 18 years old. All of these four teenagers would have previously been arrested and convicted at least once, and they will state that on this day, they were on the way to rob a video arcade in Manhattan. So they had screwdrivers in their pockets in order to like, you know, unlock those machines, get like some money, or just to make sure to play with them in order to ensure a win. However, the person that is about to board this train didn't know any of this. When the train arrived to the 14th Street station in Manhattan, there were still about 15 to 20 other passengers on the train. And here is where Bernie entered the car. He entered at the rearmost door and then crossed the aisle and took the seat on one of those long benches across the door. Troy Kenty was across the aisle. From him, he was just lying on the long bench just to the right of the door. Barry Allen was sitting just next to Kenty to his left on the short seat of the other side of the door. And then Ramzur and KB were seated to Bernie's right, just across from that door. According to what Bernie will later say to the police, it took them about 10 seconds after they were all seated for Kenty to ask him, how are you doing? And Bernie just responded, fine, didn't want to start up any further conversation. But according to Bernie, this is when these four individuals, these four teenagers, will give one another signals. And shortly after, Kenty and Ellen would rise from their seats and move over to his left. So sort of everybody was on one side of Bernie's and now they're on both sides. They have surrounded him. 
Bernie now feels trapped because he has theoretically been blocked off from other passengers. And this would be when Canty would say, give me five dollars. That was it. He didn't say anything else. Bernie didn't respond. None of these four individuals drew a weapon out. But Bernard gets Will. He responded by standing up, pulling out the handgun that he had on him, and firing four shots in a really quick sequence. The first shot will be fired at Canty. It would hit him in the chest. Then the second will struck Ellen in the back. The third one will hit Ramzur's arm and go into his left side. And then the fourth one would be fired at KB. This rapid succession will be confirmed by the experts in trial later and also by the multiple witnesses that were still in the same car. What will be disputed is the fifth shot. So we know because of the ballistic records, because his gun was examined, that Bernie didn't shoot only four shots on that day. We know that he shot five. And what he will say next, and what people couldn't agree with, is going to be really the core of this case. You see, the media reports will immediately talk about how five shots have been fired, and how two of those last shots both hit KB, how none of those shots have missed. And KB would be the only person out of here to have a long-term injury. He will actually end up paraplegic because of the shot to his spine. So because the media was reporting that none of the shots have missed, that will lead Bernie Getz to spin his own version of events. He will later say that he had lost count of the shots, and while under adrenaline, he didn't even hear the shots or feel the kick of the gun. According to his police interrogation that we will hear a bit later, Bernie would be led to say that at first he actually wanted to make sure that every single one of these teenagers had been taken care of. So with KB, he seemed to be unsure. So according to his first version of events, Bernie approached KB after that last shot, telling him, you don't look too bad, here's another one. After this, apparently he shot KB once again. However, KB will be the only one out of these four teenagers that will still be sitting on a subway when he will receive that shot to his spine. And later it will be confirmed that one of these bullets didn't actually hit any of the kids. That it kind of hit like at some place on the subway. So it didn't hit a person. But now because the media was running this version of events until the trial, there were five shots that none of them had missed. And because eventually the interrogation that Bernie had with the police, where he said that he basically approached one of them, challenged them and then shot them once again, well, that particular part will not go with what he will use in trial, which would be self-defense. This is actually why, if you listen carefully to the intros, the reckless endangerment charge will be brought against Bernie in the future, because the bullet that missed hit the steel cab wall behind KB, meaning that it could have easily shot somebody else who was in that car, one other of those 15 to 20 passengers. 
The shots have been fired, and all but two of the other passengers managed to flee the car, when immediately after the conductor, who was in the next car, he hears the shots, and he instructs the motorman to radio the emergency services. The conductor then goes into the car where the shooting occurred, sees that Bernie has just slumped over in the bench, he's just sitting, and the injured four people are just lying on the floor, or KB was just slumped against his seat. And then the two women, who had apparently taken cover, because they don't know if the two of them are next, are just lying on the floor. And Bernie tells the conductor that the four kids that he had just shot had tried to rob him. According to some sources, this has happened as Bernie has actually approached those two women that are on the floor to check if they are not injured. Like, my man, can you imagine something more terrifying? Like, you have just shot four people and you're, like, suddenly caring that nobody else is hurt. I'd be freaked out. I'd genuinely probably piss my pants and be like, move away from me, what the fuck? So the conductor asks him that. Bernie responds, they tried to rob me and I shot them. And then the conductor asks him whether he is a police officer, to which Bernie doesn't lie, he says he isn't. The conductor, he always say that Bernie didn't hand over his gun. He just decided not to wait for the police, but rather to jump onto the tracks and run south through the tunnel to the Chamber Street station, and this is where he just exits. The police and ambulance crews would arrive short after, and Ramzur and Kenty were initially listed to be in critical condition, but they have fully recovered. However, as mentioned, KB would remain paralyzed. And he also suffered some degree of brain damage as well. What Bernie does next, I find questionable. And I would like people to explain, you know, all of the fans of Bernard Getz, who love and respect what this man has done. You know, he has just defended himself. I can see it to a certain degree, don't get me wrong. With this story being that, you know, four people have cornered him, he had a gun on him. You can see how in the American system, because this case, after all, is very much the representation of what American gun control is in a nutshell. I can see how people can see this as self-defense. However, for me personally, to see something as self-defense, everything needs to align. And what Bernie does next really doesn't. So he exits, he exits, exits that station, and then he goes home. He goes home in order to gather some belongings, rent a car, and then drive north to Vermont. He doesn't have anybody there, he's just like staying in motels, but he also does a few things. He burns his blue jacket, dismantles that gun that he didn't hand over to the conductor, and then scatters the pieces of it in the woods north of town. He then drives around New England for several days, just staying at the motels under different names and paying in cash. So why do this if you aren't feeling guilty about it? If you are 100% sure that what you have done is self-defense, why are these your actions after the fact? At this point, the media has, of course, picked this story 
up. They are calling him the subway vigilante. There is a sketch of him. People are still looking for this man to be questioned by the police. And of course, he is circulating in the news. So on December the 26th, an anonymous hotline caller rings the police and they say that they know who the gunman is. They have known somebody to match this description. And that person owned a gun and was also previously mugged. The police now has the name and can actually start tracking him down. But three days after that, Bernie decides to call his neighbor, Myra Friedman. And she tells him that the police had already come by the apartment, they have already been looking for him, and had left notes asking her to contact him, you know, or asking the neighbors as soon as possible. If you see him, just please get in touch. So Bernie decides to give his side of the story to his neighbor and describes his psychological state at the time. He said, quote, Myra, in a situation like this, your mind, you are in a combat situation. Your mind is functioning. You're not thinking in a normal way. Your memory isn't even working normally. You're so hyped up. Your vision actually changes. Your field of view changes. Your capabilities change. What you are capable of changes. You're under adrenaline, a drug called adrenaline. And you respond very quickly. And you think very quickly. That's all. You think you think, you analyze, and you act. And in any situation, you just have to think more quickly than your opposition. That's all, you know, speed is very important. Bernard Getz is about to get caught, or surrender on his own volition. So let us talk about the background on crime in New York City and Getz's background in order to get to the bottom of this. And why did this man get so intimidated by four teenagers on a subway train? If you were unaware of what the streets of New York looked like through the 80s and you watched movies like The Taxi Driver, The French Connection, Marathon Man and thought, wow, this is too extreme, like what a dystopian universe... The representation of the city in those movies were actually a lot more real than you'd think. During the 1980s, New York City experienced the highest rates of crime. Murders would average almost 2,000 a year, meaning about 8 murders a day or 38 crimes a day on average. The subway system was a hotspot, as was just gang violence, vandalism, anything to do with street crime. The way that this was combated at the time was there were pamphlets, there were flyers just, you know, spread around town stating, welcome to Fear City. It was a survival guide of sorts. with literally step by step or like impose the curfew on yourself. Stay off the streets after 6 p.m., do not walk. If this is your first time getting mugged, this is how you cope with it in like five easy steps. It was the freaking buzzfeed of crime, but it worked because these signs everywhere warning you to mind your valuables, to keep your chains, your jewelry tucked away while on a subway, you suddenly start to be more and more alert. Like if somebody approaches you, if somebody even raises a look, or, you know, you think that somebody's following you, you start looking over your shoulder, and that becomes your natural behavior. 
And this is why it will come as no surprise that the media, after this very attack that we are talking about today, started publishing the stories, praising Bernard, praising his actions, saying, finally, someone had the courage to stand up to the thugs, to the youths. They're going to be called so many different names to the thieves, to the perpetrators of these crimes that we have been witnessing now over a decade. Somebody finally had to guts to stand up to them. And that somebody already had previous experience in this crime-ridden city. Bernard Getz was born in the Kew Gardens neighborhood of New York in 1947. He was the son of Gertrude and Bernard Willard Getz. His parents were German immigrants, they met in the U.S., his dad was a Lutheran and his mom was Jewish, and when he was growing up, Getz lived with his parents and three other siblings, his dad ran a dairy farm and a bookbinding business. At the age of 12, he will be sent to Switzerland, here his sister and him attending a boarding school, from what I gathered, and then he would return to the U.S. in 1965, in order to study, get a degree in electrical engineering and nuclear engineering, and after that, the family will relocate to Florida. Getz will join them, and he will work for his dad's business at the time. He was even briefly married, and after his divorce, he moved back to New York City, and this is where he would have his own electronics business, and he will apparently run it from his Greenwich Village apartment. So this is what he was doing in 1981, when, this is now three years before the subway incident, he will end up being robbed. So for his electronics business, he started transporting the equipment, and this is where three individuals attempted to rob him, in the middle of the street. According to Bernie, they smashed him into a plate glass door and threw him to the ground, injuring his chest and knee. I couldn't find much on this incident, but according to a police spokesperson, he was apparently assaulted again by three youths. I don't know the race here, either of these people, but they tried to take his jacket off of him. And this spokesperson said there was only one arrest, so the other two attackers actually managed to escape. So, of course, this led Bernard to get extremely pissed. He was angered that this arrested attacker, as well, spent less than half the time in the police station than the time that Getz will spend himself. And he was just further angered that he was only charged with criminal mischief for ripping gets his jacket because he was like well what if this was a notice you know what if i couldn't defend myself where would this crime have ended like how many more crimes would have been committed would i even be alive today so from what i gather i don't even know if these people served any time in jail i don't even know if they caught the other two attackers but this would lead bernard to actually buy a gun for his own protection you can kind of see how this traumatic experience 
might have even possibly led to something like PTSD. He will never be diagnosed with this, by the way. I'm definitely, you know, out of my realm of scope when it comes to my knowledge on mental health and shit. But just something that you might notice when he's later interrogated by the police and I play that, I think there is something there. There is some level of PTSD that develops because of this, that he could have gotten treatment and help for, but instead he decides to get a gun. And this will be where other charges will later apply, because Bernard applies for a permit to carry a concealed handgun on the basis that he routinely carries valuable equipment and large sums of cash. But this application is denied, they state the reason as insufficient need, so he decides to still, on the sly, buy a 38 caliber revolver when he goes back to Florida. So now he will have that unregistered gun on him during the shooting on the subway in that December of 1984. You can really tell that Bernie's outlook on crime and how the city governments are coping with it will change after his mugging from 1981. He will call New York City lawless and will also show contempt for the justice system, calling it a joke, a sham and a disgrace. It's no surprise, taking this previous experience, that then, once the four people apparently surrounded him on the train, he feared being beaten to a pulp, as well as being robbed. Now that you have the limited amount of background on this story, we pick up in real time, when on New Year's Eve at 12.10pm, Bernard Getz will show up at the headquarters of the police station in New Hampshire, announcing that he was the subway shooter that everybody has been looking for. And this is where they will bring him into a room and an interrogation will occur, where I will play some bits and pieces out of it. If I were to describe this interrogation in as few words as possible, I would give you a trigger warning. If you have ever been in a gaslighting kind of relationship, this is what this is. First, Bernard Getz will describe how he saw this as four youths provoking him. They had their secret language and he was so well versed in it. What is right and wrong? There are moral issues. You decide. I became a vicious animal, and if you think that is so terrible, I just wish anyone could have been there in my place. So anyone who's going to pass judgment, fine. I was vicious. My intent was to kill him. And 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 you just decide what's right and wrong. He describes this whole experience by the analogy of cornering a rat, poking him so many times, and then the rat lashes out. And people don't come about the statements of morality when that happens. So why are we coming with those kind of statements in this case, when he was clearly just defending himself? I I told the guys, I don't know if it's in that statement, but if if you take a rat and you corner it, and you, let's say just one time, you start poking it with, with red-hot needles and the, reactor, and the rat doesn't know how to react and you do this, okay? And you wind up doing it again, or, you know, perhaps again. And if once in a while, a rat turns viciously on you, 
and just becomes a total vicious killer, which is which is really what I was. Then don't don't go passing statements of morality, saying, ah, well this was uh, not warranted, or this was uh, you should have uh, done this, or all you had to do was show the gun. I've been in situations where I've shown the gun. What happened here is I snapped. Once he is done on the ethical dilemmas and making these analogies, which takes him about an hour from the accounts on this documentary that I have found that's actually a lot better than the one that is produced by Netflix, Trial by the Media, I found that one to be just extremely dead. But yeah, I will find this one, it's on YouTube, it's free to watch, and it includes opinions on the jurors as well, so it's really insightful. But according to this documentary, it took him about an hour to actually describe the crime. So let me play that. This is Bernard Getz describing what actually happened in that subway car. First, the fellow, one of the fellows who was lying down, he said, there were four fellows in there. He lied down, and he, he was lying down, and he he looked at me and he said, how are you doing? Now, legally, that's a nothing statement, and this is an everyday statement, and that meant nothing to me. But things started clicking in my, you know, things started clicking in my mind. Now, I was the only person in that section of the car with those four. They were all either in front of me or on my right-hand side. The point is, okay, how do you interpret how we I, doing with I interpret that I interpreted that as nothing. That That was just like... It wasn't even a warning signal. It was just because my response to that was, I was looking down. I know it's impolite to look at people sometimes. So I was looking down. I looked at, I looked at him. I said, fine. Okay. Now, we interpreted that then. What was your feeling when I said, how are you doing? What, what, what were you thinking at that time? What was your impression of how are you doing? What were you feeling? These were just kids kidding around. Okay. That's, that, that's all. Could have been just kids kidding around, but it's just a possible warning. Just a possible. It, 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 it wasn't even a possible warning. I wasn't primed. But then two of them stood up, okay. okay, and they walked over to my left, okay? Now, there were two on my right and two on my left. The fellow on my right, one of them, at one time, he had his hand in his pocket with his bolster. You know, I had seen that before, and I know it's bullshit. And I'm going to repeat it again. The reason I know it's bullshit, these guys are too smart to carry guns. You've told them they can't carry guns, okay? And I knew it was just a bullshit threat. And even if he is carrying the gun, I knew it was bullshit. It's irrelevant. Okay? So you knew he had no weapon. As far in my mind, that was irrelevant. And you can judge me on that if that's one of your technicalities. I could claim, I could claim that that bothered me. And that, that didn't bother me. Okay. You see, I don't care if I live or die. And whether you believe that, that should be on, the, that should be on some of the statements after my mugging when I tried to get my pistol permit. I told them I... I don't have a family or anything. Let's if not, some, not if someone kills, I'm not family. If someone kills, I don't care. But I just don't want to be maimed. I don't want to be beaten again. Okay. Now, I'm sorry for speaking to you in this tone, but no. you see, to me, you represent the system in New York. He has something. Okay, no, no that, that was that. That was that was nothing. What that happens? was nothing. Well, no. What happens next? Saying, "How are you doing?" That's not a threat to me in my mind. The bulge in my pocket, in his pocket. That's not a threat to me. Okay. The situation when the two move on my left and the two are on my right, now that is a real fucking threat. And if you if you don't if you don't recognize that, okay, that is a real threat. Now at that point, are they all moving? I don't know. The important thing is to keep track of their position. You see, you're not familiar with 
with fighting and violence. It is serious. You think of violence. I, I told the guys, I told one of the men in there, people think of fighting. You watch Star Trek and you see Captain Kirk fight a bunch of guys. And then three minutes later, he's walking arm in arm with a beautiful woman. That is bullshit. It is, that is so, that is so far from reality. The, the real threat at that point, the two were on my right and the two were on my left. I knew at that point I would have to pull the gun. I'm going to say this. At that, at that time, I was going to pull the gun, but I wasn't going to kill him. And that is what, that is what I wound up, wound up trying to do. But I had, no, I had no intention of killing him at that time. You get the gist. He just doesn't want to be attacked again. He wants to follow the situation as closely as he can and then assess it and then withdraw the weapon. But now he makes some interesting statements. If he never thought these kids were having guns on them, if he thought that those were not guns in the pockets, which, I mean, if it is a screwdriver, yeah, like, you easily know it's not a gun, then why, knowing that you have the upper hand, don't you announce that you yourself are armed, that you yourself have a weapon, deadly weapon, and you are going to shoot? That's one thing that I want people to explain to me. If you truly believe that this was self-defense, which partially, yes, you can see how it was, why weren't any warnings made in this case? Because he never explains that. He just says, like, I wanted to follow the situation as it evolved, and then, you know, I didn't want to be basically embarrassed or beaten to a pulp. And that's why he took precaution and pulled the gun out. What he, what he's, according to the papers he asked me, his exact words were, give me five dollars. He said it with a smile, and his eyes were bright. The words meant bullshit. I knew I had to pull the gun, but it was the look, and now, you cannot understand this. It was his eyes were shiny. He had a smile on his face. He claimed it was all a joke. If you believe that, I accept that. When I saw the, the smile on his face and the shine and the shine in his eyes that he was enjoying this I knew what they were going to do you understand okay do you do you understand now it was at that point now for combat you have to be cold-blooded and I was it was at that point I decided I was gonna kill them all murder them all do anything why did you think they were going to do how can you ask a question like that? They were going to, they were going to have fun with me, miss. What do you mean by that? What do you mean? What is your interpretation of that? I can't get inside your head. Beat the shit out of you. You thought they were going to beat you up. You, 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 just use, you, you just use a casual phrase. What are you saying? Miss, miss, your attitude, your attitude, you are so far removed from the reality, and yet they send you here as a professional, as a professional, to investigate this. It's beyond belief. New York City, you know, the city, the city government is just too much. It's too much. Now, if you don't know what was, if, 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 if you can't understand what was in my mind at that time and what was in their minds, fine. Then then you just watch this tape again or whatever you want to do and you and, and you think i had to play that part just for you to see how rude he gets with this person if i remember right also this police officer was the only one in this room who was a person of color 
and he just like is so disrespectful to each and every one of them that's why this tape lasts for as long as it does but he then reiterates once again he goes back to the story that somebody repeated give me five dollars and you hear the jurors from this point on after they hear how he's speaking what he's assessing out of this situation they have slowly started making a shift obviously these jurors were interviewed after the trial but the tape has been played during the trial and it is what gets and it is what gets says next that really makes them all doubt uh, give me five dollars i pulled out the piece i just started firing as i told the fellow in there it's unimportant to look at what you're firing at. You just target images in your mind. You fire, it is, it, to use his expression, you, you, you aim for the center of the mass. You run. You keep moving. All you have to do is to be faster than they are. If, now, perhaps they're, you don't know what's happening on your right-hand side, but it doesn't matter. You do what you have to do as quickly as possible. You don't think. You live from f the fraction of a moment to the fraction of a moment. The, the, uh, you, you just react. You just react. You forget everything that happened the instant before. You, you sight, you, you don't understand. I'm explaining what happened. You sight, listen, listen you sight, you target. That was number one. I got number one. Got number two. They say I shot him in the back. It doesn't matter. I wasn't even aiming. I was aiming for the back. Doesn't matter. You aim show for the me where you were. Show me where they were. I'm gonna. This is a detail afterwards. This is okay. We'll go on to Notice how he is referring to them as number one, number two, number three. Like at this point, he probably doesn't even know their names. Neither does he care. And I got that feeling remained during the trial. So of course somebody picked up on it during this interrogation room and asked him why these four individuals. Mr. Kent, why these four? Why these four? Oh, oh, isn't that beautiful? You asked the question in an intellectual way. Why these four? Why these four? I didn't pick out these four. I never met those guys. I told you have it in here. I never met them. Why these four, though? I mean. Because, because I saw what they were intending to do with me, miss. Miss, they were intending to play with me, like a cat plays with a mouse. Now, you're not familiar with these things because you're not familiar with violence. They shouldn't have sent you up here. They should have sent people. They should have sent people. I'm sure there are people in the New York City government who are familiar with violence, who know violence, okay? Because... It's, it's a realm of reality that you are not familiar with. And, 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 and so, you, so you speak of these things in an intellectual value, in an intellectual way, and I am going to be judged on, oh, 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 this was not displayed, or that was not displayed. After he drones on, trying to explain to this woman why she doesn't understand the violence on these streets as a police officer, then he finally recaps what happened after the shooting. And here, what will become questionable for the jury was that KP by default was shot in the back. He ended up paralyzed because of that, and he was shot sitting down. So let's hear how Getz tries to explain that. We're on the ground, the first two of 
looked, I, I ran up to the first two to check them who were on the ground, the first two that I had shot. And they were taken care of. It's all very cold-blooded, and this is going to offend everyone. I went back to the other two to check on them. And the fellow who was standing up, I was sure I had shot him. It was funny. I wanted to give Andy an honest answer. I want to know if I missed, but I, I went, I went to him the second time, and I looked at him. And he can't verify this because he was probably out of it by then. If I had shot him or if he wasn't, I don't know. And I said, "You seem to be doing all right. Here's another." I was gonna shoot him, but he didn't matter. He, he again. I thought I was sure I'd shot him. Maybe I didn't. He jerked his arm, and I just you seem to be doing all right here's another those would be the words that will stick in jurors minds as they're hearing this at trial this interview would end with bernard gets concluding that the city doesn't care about violence otherwise this wouldn't have happened and once Bernard Getz leaves that interrogation room, he will still be perceived by the public as a hero. The press dubbed him the subway vigilante, and it probably created in many people's minds what a vigilante gunman would look like. At this point, the public will believe two things. The first one, that all of the five shots actually hit those four individuals. And the second one, well, they will not have heard this interrogation as of yet, so they will see Bernard as this hero, somebody who is finally standing up against the crime that they have been seeing for the past decade. They wouldn't be able to have a clue about his personality and possible intentions and also his background. They didn't have that bit of info on his mugging from three years ago. People stood by Bernard. The Guardian agents, which is the volunteer group, collected thousands of dollars from the subway riders towards the legal defense fund for Bernard. Then the Congress of Racial Equality, a right-learning civil rights organization, supported him. Their director offered to raise defense money as well. Once he did a couple of interviews, one with Barbara Walters, the other one with this guy called Geraldo Rivera, I googled him, had no clue who he was. Well, the story, his background story, the shooting of 1981 became exposed. And then the NRA got a hang of that story that gets applied for the gun permit and was rejected. So they supported him, using him as a poster boy as they advocated for the gun laws that would be less strict around New York City. Another thing that work forgets at this time of his arraignment on January the 3rd is that the prior criminal convictions of the victims in this case were also published. So suddenly there was just no sympathy left for the victims of this shooting because now everything made sense for the people. These were criminals, these were the people that gets clearly perceived at the time that have cornered him in this situation and they rightfully deserve this. This is just a quick sideline here before we continue with Bernard's trial. But does this ring Miss Sloan to anybody? Like this whole story was just so well portrayed fictionally in Miss Sloan. I think it is Miss Sloan, right? It is, right? 
is the Jessica Chastain movie surrounding gun laws. Because when I watched this thing, like, with my husband, like, he was just like, oh, so you realized what happened now at that scene where, you know, somebody gets shot, but they're vouching for stricter gun control rules or to, like, exterminate guns to begin with, but now they get defended by a gunman who just happened to have a licensed weapon on them, etc. And I was just like, no. I don't think Americans who listen to this video understand how enrooted this is in your culture from everything, from the fact that you can walk into a Walmart and get a gun. Like, that is so insane to me. To the fact that you can just have them on you at all times, like in a subway, anywhere. And like other people just feel, what, safe around you, knowing that each and every one of those people can have guns on them. And then to finally lead to these kind of instances where somebody just assesses the risk. They're like, well, this is giving me reasons enough for me to pull this gun out and just shoot. And yet again, what everything will come in this story will be that he never gave a warning. He never warned these individuals, which you might say, okay, well, again, just like Bernard was saying in that interrogation room, he knew how this will go because he had previous experience. This would have unraveled quickly. It was four against one. Had he warned them, even if he had pulled the gun out, well, again, that's four individuals. Somebody could have kicked the gun out of his hand. But still... I feel like there was something that had to have happened here before he just pulled his gun out shooting the five shots at four unarmed individuals. The shift will finally happen when two months after his arrest, the statement will become public. And for the first time, everybody is going to hear the infamous, you don't look so bad, here's another. Also, what they will be putting into question is that in February, one publication started sharing information concerning Getz's potential racist views. They had records of Bernard using the N-word in the past. Then you have this whole case where the victims are four black teenagers. And then you have his record of how he spoke with a person of color during that interrogation. So black people in power started calling this out. The American civil rights activist, who was also a Baptist minister, talk show host, and a politician, this guy called Alfred Charles Sharpton Jr., spoke up on this, saying, you don't just get up and start firing and shooting four people. How is that self-defense? He and other activists accused Getz of being racist. Sharpton just blatantly said that this was the overreaction that is soaked with race and bigotry. Sharpton told the media that Getz was likely traumatized from his previous mugging experience and then he stereotyped all young black men as muggers. And you have to wonder, at least in my opinion, what would have happened if Bernard Getz jumped on that exact same train, exact same time, exact same situation, but if those four individuals sitting in those positions were white. Would he have done the same thing? Would he have found some relatability factor where he would have actually issued a warning? Would he have even perceived a situation as threatening at all? Because in this story, we partially have what we see today. 
what we have seen with George Floyd, what we have seen with so many cop-related crimes, where a police officer would just stop somebody, that person wouldn't even be armed, but they would fire at them, purely because of the color of their skin and the previous experiences that they associate with that. So you can see this kind of crime that happened in 1984 as a one-off, something that would have never happened today. But there is something so sinister in this story, and I think that is definitely relevant in the crimes that we see committed even now in 2022. But here, now that we have all of the pieces of this puzzle for you to make your own decisions on the case, the DA was granted the court permission to resubmit attempted murder and assault charges. They even had the additional witnesses, two out of four victims already testified. So finally, Getz was indicted on four counts of attempted murder, four counts of assault, and one count of reckless endangerment, because that bullet would land somewhere else and not into one of his four victims. The trial only started in December of 1986, and the jury selection process took almost four months. So, on April of 1987, the last member of the eight men and four women jury was finally seated. In their opening statements, the DA told jurors that the evidence is going to show that Getz shot one of the teens in the center of the back as he tried to flee. That this person, KB, was permanently paralyzed while sitting down in a subway seat, absolutely helpless, doing nothing that is threatening towards Bernard Getz. They concluded their opening statement by saying, you are here to decide whether the idea of equal justice under the law for all people is a reality or is an empty dream. The defense attorney, Barry Slotnick, followed with his opening statement, saying that his client is neither Rambo nor a vicious predator, but rather someone that was surrounded by threatening youths intended on robbing him, and who, in response, took proper and appropriate action. Even in his opening statement, his defense attorney referred to his victims as hoodlums, criminals, savages, punks, lowlifes, and thugs, just really drilling it into the jury's head. He told them that the four youths assumed the risk that a citizen, like Bernie Getz, would lawfully, justifiably fire a weapon in protection of his property. Two days into this trial, the day spent setting the scene, interviewing the paramedics, the conductor, you know, trying to display how the shootings have happened, they finally play the tape, the interrogation tape, where Getz is the main protagonist. The jury will hear him telling the detectives that his prior mugging was an education that convinced him that the city doesn't care what happens to you that he judged the body language of the teens, and that that body language told him that he was in danger, and then he went into a different state of mind. You react, he explained, and remember that speed is everything. Troy Kenty, one of the victims, will take the stand first, and he will explain to the jury that they boarded that subway train with the intention of going to Manhattan, robbing video games, and he testified that he was three or four feet away from Getz when he asked him, 
can I have five dollars? He would be cross-examined on this, whether or not it was can I have five dollars or give me five dollars, like was it more menacing or not? And according to Kent, he gets responded by saying you can all have it. And then he unzipped his jacket, pulled out the pistol and started firing. Getz's defense team will question Kenty on his previous robberies, previous threats and crimes, and also on his possible monetary interest in the outcome of Getz's criminal case, because they had a civil suit brought against him, against the shooter for the injuries that Kenty and the rest of them suffered in 1984. The other two victims, James Ramsour and Barry Allen, also took the stand and they didn't really do so well for themselves. James reached out for a Bible and then just pushed it away and the judge ordered him to take the oath, but he refused. And then Barry Allen would plead a fifth for about like 20 minutes until both of these lawyers have given up and he just didn't actually testify, didn't actually reveal anything. Most of the eyewitnesses painted a picture for the jury of somebody who looked like he was very mad, firing shots in rapid succession, who seemed like he was worried, and then who, once he fired all of the shots, looked like he was just sitting there, very calm. And the eyewitness testimonies in general, if you listen to this podcast or the YouTube channel, you know I'm not placing much weight for them. And that is because they were all over the place. Some of them hurt Getz's case, some of them were contributing to it. There were witness testimonies prior to the shooting where people have said, look at those four punks bothering that man. Like as in a wife and a husband were sitting down trying to like protect themselves, but this is what they observed. Then there were witness testimonies by an actress who was just present on the same train saying that she never saw Kenty make any kind of menacing gesture or even raise his voice. But then another witness on the exact same train would state that all of the four youths were standing around the white man and acting in a loud, harassing and menacing manner. The prosecution star witness, as described by many, was this guy called Christopher Boucher. He was the one who testified that he saw Getz shoot Daryl Kobe as he sat helplessly in a seat by the conductor's cab. He confirmed that Kobe was just sitting in his seat, that he was never threatening Mr. Getz, and that he never had anything in his hand. And when he was asked, was there any doubt in his mind that he saw a person sitting in that seat when the shots were fired, he said no. What the prosecution, and this doesn't come from me, it comes from like other accounts online, didn't do well, is that they should have ended this with that tape. Like, that would have been damning. If they ended with like all of the gaslighting, him, you know, stating that he basically actually went to the victim, kind of tried to test them, I don't know what, prove his masculinity and then shot one last shot. Even if that was by the experts to be confirmed not to have happened, that's damning. That kind of excludes self-defense. But the prosecution team didn't do this. They ended their portion of the trial with a victim. James Ramsour took the stand here. And here he didn't push away the Bible. It seemed that he took the oath and started his testimony. But he didn't really say much. We don't know if he actually said a lot of things because the defense team started accusing him of his criminal history. And that became the focus rather than the actual event at the subway. So James 
Ramzur accused Slotnik of twisting his words and arguing that certain questions were none of his business. Eventually, he was even taken out, held in contempt, and his testimony was stricken from the record. But now, if this is how you know you end your case, it plants a seed of doubt in this jury. Again, they hear about a criminal record of one of the victims, and they start to think, was this attack justified? The defense team would really get the jurors to understand Getz's reaction in the subway. So, in order to do that, they opened up their case by presenting evidence that concerned the injuries that Getz sustained during his own mugging in 1981. So, it was all about painting the picture, describing that background, and making sure that people understand that he was repeatedly punched and kicked by the assailant. They had the officer who will testify for them, stating that Troy Kenty, still lying on that floor once the officer arrived on the scene of the crime, told him we were going to rob him, but he shot us first. This police officer stated a completely different thing to the news reporters on the day of. He stated in an interview that was published, you know, people actually had receipts, he stated in an interview with the media that Kenty said that they were just fooling around with the guy. But during this trial, this officer still said that he was just nervous and he is still standing by his statement in court that he has made. One of the crucial witnesses for the defense was a neuropsychiatrist, the guy called Dr. Bernard Udwitz. He testified in the support of the theory that the five shots were part of a single adrenaline response. So that after the first shot, Getz went onto the automatic pilot and he had no opportunity to reevaluate the situation and to stop until that last bullet had been fired. This, as we know, contradicts Bernard's own admission in the investigation room, and the juror would later say that this testimony by the neuropsychiatrist was quite an important for them considering during deliberations if Getz's actions could be legally justified. In order for the defense to showcase their theory, they even took a trip. This is why I don't believe in the American justice system, because how can you do shit like this during like every trial? It's like, let's entertainment, like it's a school trip for little children. So on May the 29th, the jury would take a field trip. They would go to a New York subway car that was a replica, technically. It was essentially identical to the one in which the shooting took place. So I ask you, why not replicate it in a visual form or just inside of a courtroom? It's like, because it's a media frenzy. People just don't fucking get shit. Or at least they didn't in the 80s. So the judge instructed that nobody addresses the jurors during their inspection of the car, so they were just left to their own imagining and role-playing. The jurors would find this trip valuable. They would say that it won some crucial points for the defense. Mostly what it showcased them was that Getz in this situation would have no real room to escape and that he would have been extremely vulnerable to an attack if KB or Ramsor tried to jump him. Then there was the ballistics expert. And although this was the most tone-deaf thing that they have done in this courtroom, I can sort of understand how it would have swayed the jurors. So the ballistic experts, Joseph Quirk, recreated the scenario where this shooting would have taken place. 
And for the demonstration inside of the courtroom, he employed four roughly dressed African-American men, all members of the Guardian Agents group, in order for them to stand surrounding him the way that the four victims in this case would have surrounded Getz. Quirk also testified that he believed Ellen was shot ducking down rather than running away and that KB was initially probably standing up by the fourth bullet and then that he would fall backwards into the subway seat once shot and he would contend that the fifth bullet missed all of the victims and instead hit the subway car's steel panel. If his interpretation is correct, Getz never approached KB after that fourth shot was made. So whatever happened, it was just a product of his imagination. It never happened in real life. He, however, also had to admit during the cross-examination that he was receiving $1,500 from the defense team for this expert testimony. Now, another expert was Dr. Dominic Di Maio, who was a former medical examiner, and he testified that he believed the bullet wounds of the four individuals largely supported the defense's theory of the shooting. With this testimony, the jurors would now have two people saying that KB might have been standing and then slumped over into that seat after having been shot. This DiMaio guy didn't admit how much he was paid, but during cross-examination what came to light was that while serving as New York City medical officer in 76, his office concluded that six women have died of natural causes when in fact later it was discovered they were killed by a serial killer. So not like the most excellent array of professionals. And just like that, we move to closing arguments and the verdict. Getz's defense team argued that the prosecution failed to prove in any manner, form, or shape whatsoever that Errol Kobe was shot while sitting down. He said the evidence showed that the five bullets came in rapid succession and argued that Getz, in the words of Dr. Udwitz, had gone on automatic pilot. He described the shooting victims as a gang of four and told jurors that when they prey on people, they take a chance that it may backfire on them. About his own client's statement of here's another, he called it unreliable, coming as it did in Getz's post-traumatic period. He ended his four-hour summation by telling jurors they came in without a case, let them walk out without a conviction, which he probably thought was such a mic drop moment. The prosecution will focus on law and evidence instead of the fear of crime. In their closing statement, they would say that this case presents a monumental challenge to the most precious tenet of a free and democratic society. They would argue that Getz, by his own admission, did everything within his power to murder four young men in the subway system. He called the case sad and confusing, but he asked jurors to base their verdict solely on the law and the evidence, rather than to capitulate to the fear of crime. He especially emphasized the shooting of Daryl Cabey, calling it a totally needless injury that the defendant inflicted on him. Any attempt to justify that shooting, he contended, is a cruel joke. No reasonable person could have fired that shot. 
the jury started their deliberations in June, and they quickly found Getz guilty on the charges of illegally possessing a loaded firearm. So, of course, that one was easy to do. It was impossible to deny, and it was impossible to deny that it was licensed. From that point on, though, they kind of acquitted him on a few things. They couldn't really agree at first, and then they agreed to acquit him on four attempted murder charges on the theory that while he did want to end the real or imagined threat that is posed by these teenagers, he lacked the motivation to kill them. The most difficult decision for the jurors was on the charge of shooting of Daryl Cabey. Because here, that star witness, Christopher Boschur, well, he was really one of the few eyewitnesses, if not the only one, to present to them a different kind of theory, that maybe KP had been shot upon that fifth shot. So yes, even though it was a rapid succession, even though those bullets have been fired one second after the next, that, you know, maybe fourth bullet was the one to fit the panel, the random place on a subway, and then get still kept shooting, went over to KB and fired the last shot point blank into his side as he was still sitting down. If you remember, that was the witness that has never denied that KB during this whole time was seated, not standing. In the end, though, the rapid succession theory would allow them to accept the defense's argument that gets just went on automatic pilot after he fired the first shot. The five shots were all really one event, so there was no time for him to think. That brings us to the afternoon of June the 16th when the jury announced the verdict. He would be found not guilty on the attempted murder charges, including the KB count. He was sentenced to six months jail term, five months probation and a $5,000 fine, and two hours of community service, and the order to seek psychiatric help. On appeal, his sentence was changed to one year, with no probation, and in the end, he only served eight months in jail. Just one day after the civil trial concluded, a lead editorial in the New York Daily News stated in their headline, No hero never was. In 1996, a New York jury would award Daryl Kobe. $43 million in a civil suit. But Getz would declare bankruptcy straight away, so I don't think that Kobe ever received any money out of this. So where is everybody from this story now? Getz is now in his 70s. He still lives in an apartment in Manhattan. And since the trial in 2001, he unsuccessfully ran for New York City mayor. He might have done so unsuccessfully because his campaign was for offering vegetarian dishes in public schools and working tirelessly for the cause of squirrel rescue. (laughs) He installed squirrel houses, fed squirrels, and applied first aid to injured squirrels. I mean, I guess somebody has to give a fuck about all your rodents. So, you know. I don't think that was the priority. It's New York, okay? Yes, the crime rates have fell down significantly ever since, as we will speak about in a second. But, you know, you put squirrels over humans. (laughs) Just always, always fucking fascinates the shit out of me. 
Getz would be arrested again in 2013 at the age of 65 for allegedly selling $30 worth of marijuana to an undercover cop. So I found an article. It seemed to have been some sort of raid and the members of the Manhattan South Narcotics Division swooped in and then arrested everybody who basically wanted to sell some weed to an undercover cop here he was charged with the criminal possession criminal sale and unlawful possession but i didn't see that he served any time it stated that the charges were later dropped by a judge who said that the prosecutors had taken too long to bring the case to trial he had done a few interviews since one with nancy grace in 2007 and she asked him do you ever wish you had just given them five dollars and gets reply to that i think it would have been the better thing for me in my life if i had just given them all my money even though they might have pushed me around and beat me up for a second but i think it was good for new york city what happened was very good for new york city because it forced them to address crime then there was a 2017 interview where he was asked if he had any regrets about the shooting to which he responded I don't think it's the type of thing you regret. There are many things in my life that I regret, and I've made many, I've made many blunders. I don't think this was one of them. As to what he called blunders, let us speak about the victims. We have very limited information in this case. From this article from 1987, we find out that James Ramzur ended up serving a prison sentence And this prison sentence was for rape, so it was between 8 and 25 years. It seemed like he had escalated from just petty thefts and juvenile crimes to a month before this arrest for rape, him actually faking his own kidnapping. And again, charges have been brought against him. He was put back out on the streets and then he raped a woman, so he was imprisoned. And once he was released... Well, I don't know what happened when he was exactly released, but the latest on him was that in 2011, he took his own life while staying at a motel. I found one article on Barry Allen, again from 1987, and this article stated that Barry was also serving one and one-third to four years in state prison for a probation violation that followed his arrest. He was on probation for the chain snatching that occurred before the subway shooting. The last piece of information I could find on Troy Canty was that he was spending his time in 1985 in a drug rehab center in Westchester County. And as for Daryl Kobe, he is still paralyzed from the waist down, living with his mom in the Bronx. As for the New York City, well, uh, probably... I don't think that, you know, the mayors of the city throughout the years have really put Bernard Getz on the pedestal, given him the recognition that he thinks he deserves for reducing the crime rate there. But the crime rate did drop significantly. Statistically, as of 2006, New York City became one of the safest large cities in the U.S., where the crime rank is now at a position 194 out of 210 American cities with population over 100,000. So the crime rates, as of 2014, were comparable to those of the early 1960s, rather than the shit show that was going on in the 1980s. And this, 
brings us to the motives. What motivates vigilantes to do this kind of shit? It will come as no surprise that a lot of them would share a couple of personality traits that Bernie gets displayed here. Social vigilantes believe that they are obligated to enforce certain beliefs and standards, even when they target thoughts and behaviors that are not in any way illegal and that do not directly hurt anybody. It is that combination of ego, our views matter more than your own, and we are doing it on behalf of the society. There is always a bigger picture at play. They display an egoic lack of perspective-taking in thinking that everyone should share their beliefs and that their views should take precedence over everyone else's. And social vigilantes believe that they are acting on behalf of society to enforce correct ways of thinking and behaving. And you know, when you hear Bernard Getz do all of these analogies in that statement with the police, you might think, well, you know, he might actually be more open-minded, he might actually have all of these different views that I don't see. Well, okay, that uh, first of all is like an initial thought and then you actually realize that it is the complete opposite. And that is truly the core for vigilantism. They're usually closed-minded with extreme need to have control over either people or certain aspects of their life that they feel powerless over and they're usually a lot more ignorant than you would imagine. Ironically, they're also the sort of people who display a great deal of resistance when other people try to persuade or control them, which, of course, is what the social vigilantes try to do with the rest of us. As I was reading those traits, you probably had a couple of people in mind, and those people didn't ever commit any crimes, aren't vigilantes themselves. So what pushes these type of people over the edge? It usually does have to do with their history, of them feeling marginalized or victimized to a certain degree. And here it is important to realize that only the feeling of being marginalized or victimized is what matters. When it comes to Columbine, for example, the school shooting, those kids were never even bullied. But when you read their journals, it becomes obvious that they felt marginalized or bullied at different times. So for the individuals that take the justice into their own hands to a certain degree, they are clearly experiencing something that they feel is real. And in their mind, they're justified in getting retribution. There was a different point in this article that was on suicidal thoughts and plans, and it included this proverb, beware the man with nothing to lose. And here, of course, we don't have like the suicidal thoughts and plans. I don't think that Bernie ever played to turn the gun on himself. However, I found this to be extremely interesting because he mentions it during that interrogation with the police that he didn't have anything to lose that he didn't care what actually happened to him and usually suicidal thoughts and plans come into play because people that commit the acts of vigilante justice usually don't plan to stick around to face the consequences for their own actions here we don't see it in the degree that he does anything to himself but we see it to a certain degree when he flees because he still tries to dispose of the evidence he still tries to disassociate from this crime 
And that just isn't really spoken about. In this case, like, why does he do it? If he actually, again, I come back to that same question, if he believes that he has done nothing wrong, why try to take all of this off you? Why try to distance yourself from this crime if you truly believe that this is what justice should look like? All of this then combined with his possible PTSD or some level of trauma that he experienced in 1981 and, of course, access to firearms. It just adds to the mix of possible personality traits, and that mix turned out to be almost deadly in this case. This is how that article, when I was looking for the psychology of the vigilantes, concluded. We live in a country that applauds individual freedom. Our politicians use catchphrases like maverick and rebel to rally voters for their campaigns and we teach our children to think for themselves and not follow the pack. While individualism is part of the fabric of our nation, we have to be aware of those individuals who have lost reaction and who can no longer discern the difference between justice and vengeance. And in my opinion, how you react to this story might say more than you think about how you perceive the U.S. and your own individual freedom. But that is the story of Bernie Gets the Subway Vigilante. Let me know what you think about this one in the comments or on the social media at Pod. I feel like there are going to be different opinions on this one and we can all disagree. But can we agree on one thing? That this is one of the most American cases that I have ever covered. Because it's just all the dilemmas are there. And it is still spoken about today in such a controversial light. So clearly, a lot of people will probably disagree with certain parts of your opinion that you might have on this one. I feel like you can still not see him as a hero for pulling out the gun on that day and just shooting in a rapid succession. I think there are other names that I would have called that. That kind of break of reality where he couldn't have even remembered how exactly that had happened. But it wouldn't really be an act of heroism. And that is how I feel like these three cases of vigilantes are going to go. I don't know. One of them might prove me wrong. But that is sort of where I see it. Where somebody just gets so fixated on their own beliefs And they just have to execute what they see as justice. And a lot of people might not see it as such. But now look at the clock. Oh my god, I'm keeping you here for so long already. I missed you all. Okay. Well, yeah, now you're going to your next Zoom call. What are you doing there? (laughs) Truly, what a waste of life. Also, just a note. If you are, though, if you are going into a Zoom call and you work into one of the very few companies that are now trialing the four day week here in the UK no pressure but pressure okay all of the pressure is on you now you gotta do well you go you appear into the zoom calls you stop this podcast right now you go into that zoom call you show up you show them how productive you can be during four instead of five days you know okay Our lives depend on you, you know, it's not, it's not a small deal. Our lives depend on how you behave during your work week. So show the fuck up and just do it, just do it and have a free day weekend, you lucky bitches. Anyways, okay, I'm done (laughs) with the rant. 
<laughs> I shall be seeing you guys in two weeks' time with, I think, another mini-sode. I don't know. I don't know. Is it going to be a vigilante? Is it going to be a mini-sode? It's unpredictable. Okay, cool. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's like when the caffeine hits. But until then, you keep doing what? Keep making this world a better place. One motive at a time. Bye, fuckers. <laughs>